Welcome to Living Truth Radio, a ministry of Living Truth Christian Fellowship with Pastor Michael Lands. It's our goal to build up believers and to reach out with God's truth to all people. And now, here's Pastor Michael. Genesis chapter 2, the genesis of marriage. It is not good for the man to be alone. And then Proverbs 18, 22 says, He who finds a wife finds a good thing. 1 Peter 3, 7 says, Marriage is the grace of life. It's a good thing. It's mocked in our culture. What does it really mean anymore? It means a lot. In fact, it is sacred. It is something that God established early on. And he said, he implied it's good. And now we find out it's good He who finds a wife finds a good thing. What's interesting to me is right before that, it says death and life are in the power of the tongue and those who love it will eat its fruit. I never saw these verses back to back, but they are. And that tells me something about marriage. Communication is so important in marriage. In fact, there is no one who can love you more than your spouse and there's no one who can hurt you more. You know, words do matter. And when we speak ill words to our spouse, and sometimes we do it just because we live in close quarters, we've had a bad day, sometimes we take it out on those closest to us, and if you speak words of death, they're going to hurt your spouse. We've got to measure our words, we've got to be careful. And one thing I would say, because we're all human, we've all made mistakes with our mouths, is we need to keep short accounts with each other and extend and receive forgiveness. So if you've blown it in this area and maybe you struggle, then say, you know what, please forgive me. And forgiveness will move your marriage forward. Unforgiveness will move your marriage backward. If you sit there and stew on words and, you know, I can't believe this person said this to me, man, it it tends to eat you up inside. You know, they do lists and they say, well, what are the top things in marriage? And they'll talk about intimacy and and managing money and discipline of children and all that stuff. But communication is so huge. And if you're going to be a good communicator, you've got to have Christ controlling your tongue because nobody can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. And that's why you need the Holy Spirit. In Ephesians 5, it says, be filled with the Spirit. And then it goes on to talk about marriage. Marriage is going to be lived out at its best with Christ as the foundation and the individual believers filled with the Spirit. And you can take this to the bank, and I think you all know this. Marriage is the school of discipleship. It's where you learn to love somebody selflessly. And selfishness and pride are the key factors of taking marriages down. Write that down, make a mental note. It's not that difficult to figure out. But when a person will not relent, when they will not back down, marriages blow up because of selfishness and pride. And if two people are willing to do their best for the other, and you've got to learn this. Look, over time you learn that you've got to just accept somebody for who they are. The Bible's mode of love is not performance, it's acceptance. you got to... You know, sometimes we think this, oh, when I marry him, he'll change. No, he won't. He's been showing you his best before you got married. You need to know that. It's going to get worse. All right? I'll change him. I don't know. So it's based upon acceptance. There are differences between men and women, and they are designed by God. But you've got to learn that it's about acceptance. 
I will make him a helper. She'll be suitable for him, but she's not going to be exactly like him. In fact, the language means she'll be like opposite him. And of course, when Adam sees her, he's got to appreciate the differences, right? Whoa, man. She's a woman, right? That's a good thing. Now, God is the one taking initiative, and he says, I'm going to make a helper suitable for him. The Hebrew word is etzer, transliterated into English as E-S-E-R, or azar. This word, most frequently, the word helper or helpmate, describes Yahweh's relationship to Israel. In the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, the word connects to the idea of God being our help. Hebrews 4.16 says we come to the throne of grace to find help in our time of need. That's the word. That's the root connection of the word. She will be his helper. And the word is most frequently used for Jehovah or Yahweh helping Israel. This is not a word about servitude. This is a word about somebody who comes alongside to be an ally. In fact, in the Hebrew picture language, Dr. Seekin says, this is not the word for a servant helper. The root word azar means to surround and protect. The word etzer is used to describe a military ally. In the Hebrew picture language, the word helpmate pictures someone who is strong and can see the enemy for who they are. Helper is probably best defined as an ally. My wife and I went to a family life marriage conference some years ago. We were invited by the ministry to kind of see what it was about. Our marriage was doing well, but everybody could use a tune-up. So we went there as a pastor and wife. And one of the things they did early on, they had hundreds of people in this room at a hotel. And they said, okay, right now I want you to turn to your spouse and say, You are not my enemy. Well, we were kind of chuckling to one another, but you could cut the tension in that room with a knife. Because some people had come to that marriage conference as a last-ditch effort to save their marriage, and they were dangling by a string. And you could see people, and they, they couldn't even get the words out because they were sitting next to the enemy. It was her or him. That's why they were there. And what's interesting about this language is that Eve is supposed to be Adam's ally, able to see the enemy. Now, my wife has incredible discernment skills. I walk around kind of like, yeah, everybody's cool. She's got incredible discernment skills. In fact, I think you're bad about a thousand percent. And that is actually a biblical insight that she will have special discernment skills to recognize the enemy. In fact, I will tell you, sometimes being in in ministry, my wife has said to me, this is the enemy. Sometimes we'll have a little turmoil in the house going on and she'll say it. This is the enemy. And we'll have to just stop and pray. You know what the enemy does? He wants to divide your house because a house divided cannot stand. And some of you may be thinking, my spouse is the enemy No, actually, your wife was given to you guys to help you see the enemy. This is a word about strength. She is a much-needed ally. You want to look at your spouse right now and say it? You? Can you do it? Or not? Some of you don't want to. We'll be scheduling marriage counseling appointments later. 
Proverbs 31, the Proverbs 31 woman says, strength and dignity are her clothing and she smiles at the future. Look, I've lived on this planet for a while and I can tell you this, I have not met many weak women. Women are strong sisters. Amen? Woo! Y'all know that, right? And that's actually what the language means. She's strong. She's your ally. And we've got to celebrate our combined strengths. What we tend to do in marriage when we get in trouble is we nitpick at each other's weaknesses instead of celebrating our strengths. And I can tell you this, I can speak for my wife, I believe, in saying that where she was weak, I am strong, and where I was weak, she is strong, and together we are better. That's what marriage is about. Marriage is about helping each other. It's about lifting each other up. It's not about dominating the other person or selfishness. Now, here's what happens. This is Genesis 2.19. It says, and also, out of the ground, the Lord God... If you have an NIV, it says, had formed every beast of the field, but the original probably best reads, God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. Now, some of you might think, well, how does this fit in the flow of a marriage text? Because as, as, as Adam names the animals, there's, there's multiple layers going on. One, he's going to exercise his dominion and sovereignty He's going to be able to reflect on the difference between animals and himself. But, he, but I believe what's implied here is he's going to begin to sense that there's something missing for him. In fact, I would say that probably it's, it's good speculation to believe that animals approached him in pairs. And as they did, he gets to call out names of the animals. God has formed these beasts. And remember, Genesis 2 is giving more detail. Let me just read something really quick from New International Commentary. It says, Many commentators have maintained that in this verse one finds a classic illustration of a major conflict between the sequence of creation from chapter 1 and then what is in chapter 2, verse 19. Animals precede man in chapter 1 and the other 219 animals come after man. Now it may be the way we resolve this is just by knowing that this is not, chapter 2 is giving more detail but it's not going back to the original order. But this, trans, this commentator says it's, it's possible to translate formed as had formed, so it's looking back, so the NIV. Or one can, however, retain the traditional translation and still avoid a contradiction. The verse does not imply that this was God's first creation of animals. Rather, this is one argument, it refers to the creation of a special group of animals brought before Adam for naming. I leave that to you, but those are some different views on what's happening here. So now, the Lord God made these animals. Out of the ground, he formed them, and he created them. Think of God's power and majesty and creativity. Think of all the different forms of plants and animals and sea life. God made all of those. He's creative, man. He's powerful. And so, God's been naming everything. He's named day and night. He's named the seas. But now all of a sudden, he gives the responsibility to Adam to name the animals. And the man gave names to all the cattle, verse 20, chapter 2, to the birds of the sky, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. Now, how did Adam get the intellectual capability to name animals? Remember, we, we do know this. Adam was probably using 100% of his brain. We also know that God 
appeared to make a mature universe. He's already an adult man. He probably speaks Hebrew. But he's got these intellectual capabilities and he's, he's expressing that he's king of the earth and the woman is queen of the earth and everything is subdued under him. So when you give a name to something, you're expressing sovereignty over it. And so that, that's what Adam does. Now, I don't know how many animals lined up. I don't know if it was 10 miles of animals or a little stretch, but they were brought to him. And God collects the animals, if you will, and they're all brought to Adam. And the idea here is that Adam's pondering them. He's not just throwing out names. Names in the, uh, in the Bible have association with characteristics. So it means he has a depth of understanding. He doesn't just say aardvark and you know this or that. He's actually spending a little time contemplating characteristics. Uh, R. Kent Hughes says, this process challenged Adam's intellectual capacities. Naming demanded acquaintance and understanding of the animals. It was not a whimsical process of reviewing a 10-mile pet parade and saying, um, let's see, I've got it, aardvark, uh, chimpanzee, oh yes, zebra. One comedian you know, was saying Adam probably got tired at some point and a fly flew up and he went... Fly. <laughs> the fly is like, come on, can't you come up with something better than that? I don't even know if he named flies, but it's a pretty obvious name if he did. And so in naming the animals, Adam had a chance to ponder what was missing in him. And maybe he was beginning to feel lonely. And he gives names to all the cattle, the birds, verse 20, the, the beasts of the field, but for Adam... There was not found a helper suitable for him. The word found, I wondered, does that imply a search? Were animals lining up for <laughs> to make their best case? Did the snake come up? It confused me. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't even know where that came from, but anyway... He's going to show up in the next chapter, though, and he's going to, you know what he's going to do. So nobody suitable was found. So the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, caused, God initiating, caused a deep sleep. Hebrew is tardama. It's used of abnormally heavy sleep, here divinely induced. He caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. Now, this is, this is Genesis anesthesia. God puts him to sleep, and Adam does not get to see the creation of his wife out of his rib, which probably would have freaked him out. <laughs> Can you imagine? So anyway, he's put into this deep sleep. He doesn't get to see God's creation of her, and God does a surgery. Now, some people say, oh, this must be allegorical. This, must, this can't be literal. Why not? Doctors do surgeries. You don't think God can do a surgery? Does this mean that men have one less rib than women? No. Because <laughs> God built into the DNA pattern. If you lose something, it doesn't mean that the next generation doesn't have the same number. That's just silly. Well, some scholars say, well, the Hebrew word better translated is side. So he took from his side. But actually, it says he took one of his ribs. So one of his sides doesn't make sense. So I take this literally. He took one of his ribs literally dripping with marrow and fluid and he would make the woman out of the rib that he took from Adam. And the question any Bible student must ask is why? Why did God do it this way? Why does he 
do this surgery on Adam. Did you know that Adam is the first organ donor? You know, when someone donates an organ, some of you know people who have donated a kidney and stuff to someone they love. It's an act of love. And this is probably part of the reason why this intimacy in marriage exists and this this desire to know each other in a deeper way. So Adam's in a deep sleep and now a marvelous surgery, surgical operation is going to take place. So the man, you know, after he woke from his nap, you guys have heard that he woke up a day late and a rib short. All heard that one. Some women believe he never woke up at all. You've heard, you know, Johnny in Sunday school, he, uh, he learned about the Genesis account of the woman being made from Adam's rib. And so he came home from Sunday school, it's the afternoon, and he's on the ground holding his side, seemed to have a tummy ache or something. And mom goes, what's wrong, Johnny, what's wrong? And he goes, my side hurts, I think I'm going to have a wife. So as Adam sleeps, God does this marvelous surgery and this creative act. It's incredible to think about what God did here. And he begins to mold and shape the woman. The Lord God, 22, fashioned, literally built into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. It's interesting, the Midrash, one of the Jewish writings, says that God is the first father to walk a bride down the aisle. Because he makes her and he brings her to Adam. He walks her down the aisle. And Adam is there. And you've got to imagine, man, he's, he's been checking out the animals and he's been studying them and naming them. And now hey, there was nothing suitable for him. And now he sees her. And that's where you get the 1970s English. He goes, whoa, man. Awesome. <laughs> 1 Timothy 2.13 says it was Adam who was created first and then Eve. 1 Corinthians 11.8 says, For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. Matthew Henry, the great commentator, says, She was not made out of his head to top him, not out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, near his heart to be beloved. Beautiful. So this is what God does. And Adam, interestingly enough, probably for the rest of his his life, bore a wound scar in his side. Which is interesting. To give life to the woman, he has a wound in his side. To give life to his bride, he's wounded in his side. And then you think, wait a minute, the New Testament says that Jesus is the last Adam, the first Adam blew it, the last Adam came, protected his bride in the garden, he said, if it's me you want, uh, let, let these alone and take me, and now Jesus Christ, the last Adam, has a wound wearing his side. You may see it one day if he's still bearing those marks, and I think he probably is, according to New Testament resurrection accounts, there's a wound in the side and there's a deeper message, do you see it? Christ is the groom and we are the bride and the way we get life is from his wounded side, if you will, his death on the cross. And marriage is a picture of Christ and the church and God always does things for a reason. And Adam would bear that scar and there's a connection between the woman, amen, and the man. This is God's purpose. 
This conveys the idea that marriage is all about God. He's the father of the bride. And the man said, this, the idea is at last, 23, is now bone of my bones. And he's speaking literally now, and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called, he names her now, woman, Isha. First time that this is used because she was taken out of man, Ish. The word Isha, you could spell it this way, I-S-H-A. And he is Ish, I-S-H. His name is embedded in hers because they are bonded together. And uh, I'm sure that there was quite a moment there where he saw this counterpart, this helper, this ally who would be his life partner. I'm sure he loved her from the moment he saw her. Now, with this idea of bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, if you would turn to Ephesians 5, we just have a few moments left, and I'm going to just try to get in a couple other thoughts. Ephesians chapter 5 is the classic marriage text. And this may bring some further clarity when we've seen the Genesis account. Go to Ephesians 5 and look at verse 28. Ephesians 5, 28. She shall be called woman. She was taken out of man. In Hebrew culture, by the way, in the West, we say if someone is a kin, we say, he's my blood. We might say, he's my blood brother. Well, in Hebrew culture, when someone is bone of your bone and flesh of your flesh, they're your kin. It's another way of saying there's a deep bond. Look at Ephesians 5.28. So husbands also ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh. Think of Eve being taken out of Adam, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ also does the church. Because... We are members of his body. New King James, King James adds, of his flesh and of his bones. For this cause, now Paul quotes Genesis, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each individual among you love his own wife, even as himself, and let the wife see to it that she respect her husband, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. Go to Matthew 19. Ish and Isha are interesting words. Matthew 19. Uh, Dr. Seekins in the Hebrew picture language of uh, Hebrew uh, word pictures, he writes this about Ish and Isha, the names of man and woman. In Hebrew, uh, it means man means whose hand works in the fire. The word for both man and woman or husband and wife are built around the word Esh or Ish for fire. But the differences in the words for men and women combined in Hebrew spell God's name. Done right, God's glory is revealed in marriage or a family. Without God, all that we have left is fire. In fact, without God, the Hebrew letters that are left literally say, the fire of fires, close quote. What's interesting is men and women live near the fire, if you will. If it's the fire of God's glory, it will mold and shape both of them into the image of God. But if you remove God and just leave the fire, it will wipe out and devour everything. Marriages based upon Scripture and the Bible do very well when people are actually living out their faith. In fact, the statistics are incredibly impressive. The divorce rate is nowhere near the culture for serious Christians, in fact, the divorce rate is about 1% for people who take their faith seriously. The, the surveys that you hear in the world are people who say they're Christians. 
who give lip service to it, but are not living it out. And so now here's this incredible thing. But before we go there, Matthew 19, people in our culture are saying Jesus never commented on marriage. He never defined it. He never said homosexuality was wrong. He never made any statements about this. Look at Matthew 19. Go to verse 3. Some Pharisees came to Jesus testing him saying, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause at all? Jesus answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them what? Male and female. So what do you do after you get saved? What do you do after you pray a prayer of receiving Jesus Christ into your life? Well, there are really four things that you should do now that you've become a Christian. You've done the most important thing by opening your life to Christ, repenting of your sin and trusting in Jesus. But now you need to grow in your most holy faith. You need to find a place to grow. You need to be discipled. Because now you can expect some spiritual attacks from the enemy. And now you can expect that, you know, there's going to be a lot of areas in which you're going to need to experience growth and knowledge and help. And so the local church becomes a very important place for you to connect. And your growth is going to be dependent, at least in part, on the church that you choose. So let's start with the church. You need to find a healthy Bible teaching church. Try to find a church that teaches through the Bible in an expository fashion. What that means is they take chapters of the Bible and go through and explain the verses, not just simply 20-minute messages that are not grounded in the text. Look for a place that teaches verse by verse and teaches the, the Bible with some depth, explaining what passages mean. You need to connect to a good, healthy fellowship. The next thing is prayer. Prayer is a two-way communication with God, and we need to learn how to pray. That's going to take some time as well, but just praying and thanking God for the day. Praying with an open Bible is a good way to pray. Make sure your prayers are directed and informed by Scripture. So you have fellowship, you have prayer. Bible reading is very important. Think of the Bible as your spiritual food. There's an old saying, you are what you eat. And uh, we need the Bible to make us strong as Christians. It's our spiritual food. And just read a chapter a day. Pray before you read. Ask God to help you to get understanding. And then open your Bible and read it. And the last thing is share your faith with others. You have an immediate mission field as a new believer. You probably have a lot of unbelieving friends and family around you. Tell them the good news of Jesus Christ. And you can get help about how to share the gospel and use gospel tracts also from your local fellowship. If you need help finding a good, healthy Bible teaching church, hopefully we can help you with that. And so if you want to contact us through the website or call the church office, we'd love to give you some help in this new journey as a believer. Take it a day at a time and grow. Give yourself to fellowship, Bible reading, prayer, and sharing the gospel with others. And God will bless your life. Thank you for listening to today's program. If you'd like to listen to this message again, learn more about our church in Corona, or to access archived messages, go to livingtruthradio.org and click on the church tab. You can follow us on Instagram at livingtruthcorona or download the Living Truth Christian Fellowship app on Apple and Android devices. Living Truth Radio is a listener-supported ministry. You can partner with us by donating at livingtruthradio.org.